Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sheldon. Sheldon and I met last uh, year, which was 2021, and we recorded this podcast, I believe it was in December, and um, I just re-listened to it, and what an interesting guy he is. Sheldon lives in Newfoundland, grew up there, uh, still lives there, and grew up with an unusual amount of adversity. And he has written a book, and he is now an inspirational speaker, and he talks about how to take adversity and um, turn them into um, strengths. And he's got a book called Keep On Walking, and uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Have a listen, and uh, if you get a chance, buy his book. Welcome to season three of the Broken Open podcast. I'm Maureen Towns. I'm an author, I'm a speaker, and I am a family trauma expert. I consult to families with mental health and addictions issues. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please be sure to subscribe so that you're the first to know about new episodes when they come out. And please visit maureentowns.com just so you can get in touch with me, stay current about our programs, and stay current on any updates about the book, Broken Open. Enjoy the show. Okay, Sheldon, welcome to Broken Open, the podcast. How are you? Thank you very much, Maureen, for having me here today. I, I can say that I'm doing much better than the weather here today. We're having a snowstorm here. Oh, what's the temperature there? It's a minus five, I guess. Okay. But it's yeah, it's snowing quite badly here today. Okay, and you're in Newfoundland. I am in Newfoundland, yes. Okay, well, I'm in Calgary, and it's minus like 25 here. Like oh, it's cold. It's bloody yeah. cold here. So, um, so Sheldon, um, I'm going to start with a broken open question. Are you ready? I guess I'm going to have to be. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about a time when you experienced some adversity that at that time felt like the end of the world, but in hindsight was a real gift. Hmm. Well, my entire childhood was adversity. Um, one particular time I would have to say was the time that my father threw me against the wall and said that I would never be anything besides a disabled welfare bomb and he would be better off if I was never born. That's rough. So yeah, that was um, probably one of the most significant times in my life. And I come to realize many years later um, that it was actually the fire that stoked my fuel, was the fuel that stoked my fire yeah. to lead me to where I am today, to be an inspirational speaker who is also an author. Nice. How old were you when that happened? I was maybe eight or nine. Mm. That's that's rough, man. And so good for you. So you turned that into, like you say, the 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 fuel for a fire that you know got you to where you are. So um, why don't we back up a little bit? Tell us tell us your story. What brought you here? Okay. Well. 
keep on walking is the first thing I need to say because most of my earlier life, I didn't walk nowhere. I was born with a physical disability mm. and being the only person in a small community with a physical disability, doctors always told my parents that I would never walk on my own. And I didn't walk until I was like six years old. So I could, the only way I could get downstairs was to sit on my bum and bop me way down. I learned to walk by placing my back against the wall and just sliding along. And I was always made fun of, always bullied, always there's the one that was left out, always the one that was pet, petted on top of the head. Oh, the, the nice little disabled boy. Oh, you know, the nice little, this all I was, I wasn't known as Sheldon, I was known as a disabled boy. Um, and my mother used to always compare me to my cousins, say, oh, you know, why can't you be like more like them? Why can't you be more like them? At the same time, she was, I don't know how graphic I'm allowed to be on this show or not. Go ahead. But um, she was beating beating with the belt at the same time that she was mm. saying these things. Mm -hmm. And she made sure that the buckle, the, the metal buckle of the belt was the part that she was hitting me, hitting me with. Mm. Um, so even if I got 85, even if I got 80% on an exam, my cousins got 85. Oh, my 80% wasn't good enough. I had to do better. Why couldn't I be more like them? That's because I, I come to realize many years later, it was because she had her own demons. She had her own issues. My father was a very alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. Really, he is an alcoholic. And he was very physically abusive to her as well as myself. Um, so that wasn't easy on her. And she felt like the only way she had any power and control was to take it on me. Just the way she had her, got her frustrations out. Yeah. They don't sound like they were thriving. No. And myself have been an only child. I didn't have no brothers and sisters to um, go through family dynamic like troubles with. Yeah. So I had to bear everything on my own and I had to put it all on my own shoulders and on my own back. I mean, being five years old and telling my mother to leave my father, like how many more five-year-olds do you know that would say, mommy, leave daddy, he's bad to you. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's, there's probably plenty of different. Mm -hmm. How many of them actually speak up about it? Um, so yeah, some of the things, and my, so I started drinking at a very young age and probably 10 or 11, I started drinking heavy, very heavily. I'm coming home drunk all the time. People used to find me pass out in a ditch and lead me to my, lead me to my house and just throw me in the porch of the house. And my parents like picking up and actually throwing me in the bed and because I was too drunk and so I'd, I'd done most of that stuff to um, bury the, the pain of, the mental pain as well as the physical pain of being different and being treated like crap. That's just some of the things that I went through in my life. And it led me to, at the age of 17 years old, being forced to leave home and say, oh, we don't want you here any longer. So I was, not really able to, like, I can't, I'm unable to cook for myself. I'm unable to, because the way with my physical disability, I'm not able to raise my arms any higher in my chest. 
Um, so even though that's the case, I was still told at the age of 17, now that you're finished high school, you have to leave home because we, me and my mother and father were living with my grandparents and they were both up in age and it was too stressful and too hard on my grandmother to see me coming home drunk. So I had to go to another community and basically I was forced to go to college and like you need to get, you need to go in the world and find your own way. So I lived in a place called Clarenville and I lived there for seven years, six years. It was all, I don't remember maybe six days. Six days is probably the most that I can remember. I, people talk about having blackouts for a few days or whatever. I had blackouts for like a whole six year period. It's the, people talk to me now, it's like, I don't know who, I'm saying yes, I know who you are. I really don't. So that was a scary part of my life. I spent more time, I'd say, in, you, I'm not sure if it's called the drunk tank everywhere or not, but um, or or in the hospital getting stitched up my, for, from falling down drunk and busting open foreheads and, you know, cuts and bruises and 10 stitches in my stomach and from falling in with beer bottles in my hand and busting open my stomach and things such as that. And that continued to lead me to, at the same time, uh, that continued to lead me, I was still drinking. And there was once that I actually would have died if I made it across the dance floor. I was walking, it was a, I was in a club walking across the dance floor to get another bucket of beer when I actually went into a coma. And I was in the coma for like three or four days. And the doctor told my parents that if I had one more beer or one more drink, I would have died. Now, I don't know how they knew exactly what one more would have done it, but that's what I was told. And um, I was on the way across the dance floor to the bar to um, get another bucket of beer that had seven beer in it. I was actually drinking like probably 40 beer that night. Um, so they had to bring the stretcher into the club to get me and bring me to the hospital. And, but I was, you know, I, did, I didn't quit drinking. I was drinking again the weekend after and I was continuing for many years. But I managed to go to college. I actually went to two different colleges and I graduated both colleges with honors. But I don't even remember, I don't even remember going to school. Amazing. I don't even remember being there. Wow. But, uh, so years later, after I sobered up and I met up with, I seen one of my instructors at some place here in um, town where I live. And I asked him way back then if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, we remember you quite fondly. We, you, were, you were always drunk. <laughs> um, the first semester, they were having had to use to um, tell me to go home out of it and all that, because I was not fit to be in school. And as the semesters went on, they would say, well, if you can find your seat, you can take a seat. You know, if you can, find, if you can manage to get into the classroom, we'll let you stay. I wasn't causing anybody any trouble. Yeah. I was just showing up intoxicated. Yeah. Um, so I, I said, did you take pity on me? What, how did I manage to graduate with honors? Like, I don't remember doing the, doing the, the work. And he said, well, the thing is, you might not remember this, but we do. Is that any time you finish college, you finish school for today, for today, you go straight to the bar, to the club, but 
as you were drinking, you also had your book open in front of you. So they said, we only figured that me, as the, the alcohol was seeping into your system, so was the stuff that was coming up, and was going, the book knowledge was coming in, going in as well. That's amazing. You know, so yeah. um, that's some of the things. Also, so I lived in Clarenville, that place um, for a small community for, like I said, seven years. Yeah. And it's about, how many kilometers is it from where I'm to now? It's a three-hour drive, anyway. Um, so I I knew that I was either going to stay there and drink myself to death, or have a chance of living if I moved to the capital city of Newfoundland, St. John's. Um, but I didn't I didn't drive myself, and I didn't have no money for a bus, and I slept on the streets, and I used the rock as a pillow because I didn't have no money and getting kicked out of, I went to eight boarding houses in eight weeks because I was just showing up drunk everywhere I went. And I decided, okay, I'm going to either have to stay in Clarenville and drink myself to death or die trying to walk to St. John's, which is, like I said, a three hour drive. So I don't know how many hours. I left at eight o'clock one morning and I got in town at eight o'clock the next night. So however many hours that is. Um, yeah, and when I got to town, I knew my mother was living here in St. John's. And even though we didn't have the best relationship really ever, I knew she still treated me. She still knew I was her son. And I knew that she wasn't going to just see me out on the streets. Yeah. So she took me in and I stayed here, but I was still drinking. And I was, and her husband at the time wasn't my father, it was somebody else. Um, say, well, I married you, not this drunk, you got it for a son. And which was caused a lot of arguments between the two of them. And so it came to a point that's like, yeah, Sheldon, you're going to have to um, clean up your act. And I just didn't. Because, I, you know, that's the way addictions work, I guess, um, well, for myself anyway. My mother attempted twice in front in front of me two different times to take an overdose, like cotton pills, and she really and I really had to force her not to. And like so being her only child, and even though it wasn't that best, she was still my mother. Yeah. Um. So there's some more traumatic, another traumatic event that I had to go through. I managed years. I managed to years later clean up my act. And I was 28 years old, I guess, when I um quit drinking and quit drugging. And since then, things have been much better. Um, I'm now the, the president of the Positive Thinkers Club here in the city where I live. Yep. I'm also, after publishing my own book about my journey, please keep on walking. It's not necessarily a is that necessarily the actual walking, but some more of a metaphor, I guess, for um, walking through your obstacles, walking through the tough parts of your life and just keep on going? Because we could all just sit in one spot and not go anywhere. Yeah. We could all sit in one spot and say, oh, yeah, this is the way that this life has got to be. This is the way life is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm making a note here. Sorry, I'm looking down because I'm making a note of things I want to ask you later. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. So you wrote the book. Yeah. And I wrote the book and I'm actually became a Mervi. I'm sure you're familiar with what a Mervi is or not. 
No. A merbi is like a male merman. Okay. But here in Newfoundland, here, here in New, here in Newfoundland, one of the terms that we is by, like how you get non by, how you yeah, doing? Yeah. There are slang terms. Yeah. So, merbi, and it's actually they're after selling calendars all around the world for like three or four years in a row, running, raising money for um, charities, and so to put out a calendar each year, and I was one of the ones that's in the calendar for the last year that he had it, which was last year, and. They're after selling like, like seven hundred thousand dollars worth of calendars, yeah, around the world, and it's, it, it helps to break down toxic mas masculinity, right? Um, and shining a different light on the male, the typical male, like we shine it like that. Yes, men, men do have feelings. Yes, men do have emotions, and men, yes, men can cry. Yeah, you know, um, so. That was a great thing that I was involved with there and it's helped me a lot to benefit from what I learned from each person that was there, knowing that most of my life I didn't feel like I had a voice because of the things that I went through and I discovered my voice there. In, you know, in being in the calendar, you mean? Well, the whole group and is done through the Newfoundland and Labrador Beard and Mustache Club. Okay. NLBMC. Um, okay. So let me get this straight. So in, th in this calendar, there's an image of you as a mermaid. Yes, I got the. Uh, mine, mine was in February. So in February is uh, anti anti bullying month. Yeah. Um, so I had a nice long pink tail on the streamers, and and actually one of the main pictures is like I like is up above my head is the banner saying. Um, Happy Valentine's Day, and I got my hand in. I'm blowing you a kiss, and like I got no shirt on. I got no shirt on, but you can see my tail, and I'm just like blowing you a kiss, right? You know. That's fantastic. So, um, yeah, it was great to be around, man, and not to feel like oh, we had to be so macho and. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. So that was great. Yeah. Um, I'm also a big part of an organization here in the city um, called Stella Circle Organization. They're probably known or they're definitely known around Canada for sure. Mm -hmm. um, for helping people that's after being in prisons or the mental health system or people that's after living on streets. Like it's not, it's more than a halfway house. It's, what's there, it's employment, education, and a place to live uh, at homes. But it is to cover three main pillars in society anyway. And um, I've been a part of those for like 24, 25 years. It's the place that I actually ended up going to after my mother tried to commit suicide um, because I couldn't tend, fend for myself and I needed a place to live. Yeah. And there's one of the guidance counselors at one of the colleges I was going to actually used to be a social worker there. So she got me in right away. And usually just like a seven month waiting period. Yeah, and it's a four month is a four month is a four month live-in training uh, facilitation. Facilitation, no. Yeah, a four month life life skills training, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Can I, I ask you some questions about all that? Pardon? Can I ask you some questions about all that? Sure. That's quite. That's an unreal story. Like unbelievable. 
like um you had your share of adversity man like holy crow and i'm curious about i mean there was so much stacked against you, including it sounds like really low expectations for you. Like, you know, like you, you describe your teachers in the schools that just pat you on the head and not really expecting you to get very far in life and, and including your parents, you know, like the attitude from them and, and, and with full acknowledgement that they had their own demons, as you say, and weren't doing okay. You know, like, you know, we, we acknowledge that the people who didn't treat us well, weren't doing so hot. Right. But I'm really curious in all of that time, what kept you going like this whole, this metaphor that you speak of keep walking like one foot in front of the other man, like what kept you going? What do you, what do you attribute that to? You know, quite a few people ask me that question. Mm-hmm. And my answer is always the same. My answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I just knew that I had a purpose. I just knew that there had to be a reason. I'm, I wasn't just born just to be someone's punching bag or whatever. I knew there had to be. Had to be more. There had from there's there's always more. There's there gotta be more than just me being here. I just wanted to figure out what it was. Mm. It's almost and, like an intrinsic hope. Like you've got this hope that something better is down the road. Yeah. Well, as for myself, I didn't feel that it was hope because well, yes, we all gotta have hope. If you don't have hope, you really have nothing. I come to find out many years later the answer to what if we have no hope? What do we have? Nothing. Right. Um, but as for hope, I didn't hope there was more. I just somewhere inside I knew there had, I knew there is more. I just, you know, I don't know why or how, but I, just something inside of me knew that there was more. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my, at the end of my drinking, um, I was after I was already going to an addiction treatment center for the three or four weeks. But I canceled twice and didn't go. I ended up back drinking instead. But the final time before I did go, um, the taxi was out by, the, out by my door to bring me to the place. And I was just about to call my um, counselor and say, yeah, I'm not going. Um, but then my radio wasn't even plugged in or turned on. But the song by the Beatles, Let It Be, started playing. But my radio wasn't turned on. To this day, over 20 years later, I'm still saying my radio was not, but the song started playing. And at the same time, a, a flashing light flashed through my living room. I don't know. It was like divine intervention or something. And What's that? Oh, those are the words that just popped into my head too. Divine intervention. Yeah. Because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't have gone. I wasn't going to get on the bus. I wasn't going to get in that taxi to go. So that was the moment that turned things around. One of them, well, yeah, really turned it. That was the final thing to turn it around. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was given signs before that as well. Like my grandmother was like my mother when I was a kid growing up. Yeah. And I spent like all those years in Clarenville, never visit her or nothing. I felt too much shame and too much, too much shame to go home for over 20 years. 
Mm. And then when I did finally go home, I didn't spend no time during that weekend visiting, staying with her. I went up drinking again as soon as I got there. And she died in the house while I was there. Like, you know, I watched uh, Amos had to carry her out and she was my mother. She was my mother, um, you know. So, and I write to the day, right afterwards, I owed her, I owed her money because she'd loaned me money. And five years later, I finally went back to her, um, the home, my hometown and knelt up my grave, placed the money that I owed her on her headstone and um, spent an hour just kneeled by her grave asking her to um, guide me to the sobriety. Mm. And 28 years, 20, 28 years later, 20 years later, um, it's all over. So, mm. and that's been some of the things I've been involved with. And I decided to actually, I don't know, where am I going with this? <laughs> well, I, I think you're leading me into the next question a bit, actually, is, you know, when we look at resiliency theories, right? Like, you know, you can, you can grow up in a really adverse environment, but there's always other influences outside of your home, you know, positive influences or relationships that give you a sense of self or what you're capable of or something that you can develop trust with. So who were or what were those things for you? What and who helped you along the way? through all of that? Well, I never ever really thought that anyone did. I thought it was, I, mostly I thought it was just myself, but I'm just a stubborn, hard-headed redhead. Um, you know? Yeah. <laughs> plain, simple, and blunt with you. It's just, I'm just stubborn. Yeah. And I, and I just wanted to keep going. And the flash of light and all that made me realize you know, there had to be more for me. Yeah. And then I've heard people say that they use me as an inspiration and people use me as the motivation for themselves to keep going. Yeah. But I, my grandmother and my grandfather, like I said, were like my parents. Yeah. But they, my grandfather died when I was 13. My mother, my grandmother, when I was like 20, yeah. however old. Yeah. But I just wanted to prove my father wrong. Nice. My father told me, but like I said earlier, about being nothing but a sale as a disabled welfare bum, and you will never be nothing. Yeah. You just wanted to prove him wrong. Yeah. And, and is, he, is he still alive? Oh, yes. We, I need just another part of my story. Um, we are much, much, much closer now while we're still not, we're not totally like hugging each other every day, but. Yeah. He still never to this day, even though we are much, we have um, mended um, the broken fences. Yeah. Um, but he still, even to this day, never once ever in my life do I ever remember him ever saying that he loved me. I, right. don't, remember, I don't remember ever hearing that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's still alive. He's not, he's li living in um, senior citizens complex here where I'm, and I don't drive and he doesn't drive. And what was there in like, it's like three hours. Well, actually funny enough, is living in the place Clarenville where I was told to go to, um, you know, mm -hmm. he's living there and I'm living in the city now. So, um, we talk to each other probably once a month yeah. on the phone. Yeah. 
and things are much better than what they were. For sure. At least these things we can laugh and carry on a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. Years ago, I just even though we were in contact, it's, it sounded like I was talking to a robot all the time. Yeah. There's never no feelings, never no no, no nothing. You know, so it's only recently, really, very, very recently, I discovered from him that he, his life wasn't the best either. Couldn't have been. Right. You know, his life wasn't the best either, and he never told me much about anything. Like his past is his past. Well, all of our pasts are our past, but yeah, he wouldn't. He never told, got much into detail. He just said, "Yeah, I never had the easiest life either." Yeah. Yeah. He's after read reading my book. I wasn't going to give him my book. But he finally read my book, and um, he never, never, still never once said, "Oh, good job," or oh, nothing. Man. He just, he, well, he says like, "John, you got some strange way of telling stories." He said, "That's I don't believe I don't remember that stuff happening. I don't remember." He was denying oh. the autobiography book is what it is, and I'm telling him a lot of it, um, how my life was as a child or how I felt anyway. Yeah. And it was like that didn't happen. Mm. That's not the way I was. It's like, mm -hmm. well, it was in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. He said, well, that's not where I remember. It's like, well, you probably asked my mother, and she, three of us would have three different stories. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, you know, it's, it, <laughs> I experienced something similar in waiting for my parents to acknowledge or, or um, apologize, you mm. know, for wrongs, perceived wrongs, you know, and, and when it didn't happen, you know, you, you kind of got to learn to let it go. It's like, well, yeah. it doesn't make it any less valid. That right. was your experience. And does he know, though, that you you attribute uh, that fire in your belly to keep going to, to him telling you that you can't? Well, no. <laughs> I know because they would, give him, they would give him more satisfaction. That would give yeah. him, that would give him, see, see this why I treated you like that because I knew what I would do for you. For sure, no. you don't want to give him any credit, eh? <laughs> no. no. Well, I mean, I give credit where credit's due, but he didn't do that back then. So that when I did get, although I can't, I'm not a mind reader either. So who's to say that it, that's not the reason? I don't believe that that's the reason why. Or I don't yeah. want to believe. I don't want to believe that that's the reason why he might have said what he said. Well, it wasn't a conscious uh, giving moment. Let's let's put it that way. Even if it had some benefits, it it wasn't intended that way, and. You know, it was a, it was your power to turn that around, um, and maybe some divine intervention will will throw some credit that way too. Right. But I, um, I mean, what an amazing story! And and I'm I'm really curious about the Positive Thinkers Club, and and the reason I'm curious about it is that one of the things that I teach people is is to learn how to fully accept and embrace all the feelings. Uh, that come your way, right? Positive and so and not so pleasant emotions that come your way. And, you know, there, there is a, a school of thought out there that, you know, people who try and bright side things, you know, will look on the bright side, will look on the bright side, almost invalidate the, the unpleasant emotions or, or the tough moments. So how do you explain the Positive Thinkers Club in that kind of a context? As the president or current president of the Positive Thinkers Club and a, a few years member, I would have to say, we all know that even though 
positive thinking is very important. Mm-hmm. It's not the only kind of thinking. There is, there is two sides to every coin. Mm-hmm. It's being able to find the positive in a negative. Mm-hmm. It's being able to take a negative and see it. Maybe most, most likely hidden opportunities. Mm-hmm. So we're not saying that everything always oh, just forget about that. This negative, forget. No, it's not like that. It is we to notice the negative, acknowledge it, and not dwell on it, which is not e- which is much easier said than done. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to positive thinking, we have positive affirmations that we tell ourselves every or we can tell each ourselves every morning. I am powerful. I am strong. I can do this. And the more often, the more often I do that, the less often that I'm going to be paying any attention to the negative stuff that's on the go, because it's re- replaced by positive thoughts. But this sure. still doesn't this still doesn't take away the negative things that do happen. But as you see the negative things in all different, I see the things in all different light. Because you wouldn't know things were positive if there was no negative, because then everything would just be the same. Right. You wouldn't be able to recognize that yeah. positive situation if there was if, if there was no such thing as bad situations. So you take the good with the bad and take the bad with the good. And then put it all together and, and you get the mixture of positive, positive states of mind really good explanation and it reminds me of that um, little analogy that little story that people tell about the two fish two fish swimming along in the water and a bigger fish swims by and says hey fellas how's the water and and the one fish looks at his buddy and says what's water you know he doesn't know because he's never been out of it right and so without the contrast you don't know right so without negative or i call it i don't even want to label them negative but, but unpleasant yeah. Uh, experiences you can't uh you can't understand or appreciate really the opposite or the the happiest or the joyful or the positive right. thoughts right so that you do a good job of explaining that thank you thank you i i see that i see that as the same type of way as like it's only once i, I was down to las vegas before and um it's just a little say always sunny there mm-hmm um and i told him about where i came from i better have a snows and rains and he said wow we'd lo- i'd love to see some of that i'd love to have some of that <laughs> um and up here up in newfoundland we we're saying we wish we were down in las vegas because it's always sunny so it's the kind of thing is i consider it the same type of thing it's like if things are always positive or always negative and you wouldn't really know what what there is to appreciate or get out of dollar. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So you're quite a pool player as well. Is that right? Well, I haven't played in a few years. God bless COVID. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, yes, I started playing pool when I was like six years old. Um, funny enough, being born with two straight arms, like one in Raisin Water straight i was born without bicep muscles okay. not that they're not pumped up or whatever just, i do not have bicep muscles right um so the doctor i had surgery when i was like four years old yeah. to bend one of them permanently okay and 
Ironic, ironically enough, this is actually bent in the angle for holding a pool cue. The doctors must have known I wanted to be a pool cue, a pool player when I got older. Yeah. Um, so my parents brought me a pool table at the age of, that's how my mother and father tried to make amends for the way things were and bought me things. Yeah. Um, so they bought me a pool table at the age of seven. Nice. And I, I mean, I couldn't hold it properly at first. And, using the, the back end of the stick bigger end to try to play pool hit the ball and so i kept practicing kept practicing and i was made fun of because i played only using one hand because my other arm is still bent uh still it's still straight so people my my used to make fun of me and say oh what are you doing like that for you that's not really a place pool and finally i got good enough that i was better than everyone else in the town where i lived i got them all to shut up pretty quick um so then i moved to st john's um and the canadian pool players association I, this all across canada and in the united states as well i joined and i just kept playing and i kept winning nice and i used to yeah but because of my old recording in my head i used to think oh people were just letting you in oh interesting they could take it easy on me because i, I have a disability mm -hmm. that's the way i used to think mm. And I so I was winning this trophy and that trophy and other kind of all kinds of trophies. Um, so yeah, I became one known as the one arm bandit. Um, I know one arm bandit is a type of slot machine, uh, a gambling machine, but um, the one arm bandit because I only play pool using one arm, and usually I was the kind of person that if I was if we were playing a match of pool and we needed to win. For example, six games each, and I was down. I I would usually do better when I was behind, and having to come from behind to win. Interesting. So I'd be the bandit. I like robbed. I would rob the match away from them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So people think that they had me beat, and it's like, no, you don't have me. I'm not. It's not over yet. That, but it kind of symbolizes, I think, the rest of my life as well, the resilience and determination and. Yeah, like a real underdog, eh? Like you, uh, you know, you you do come from behind, and uh, and uh, win. And so you published this book, "Keep on Walking," and I see there that it's available on Amazon. You've got that on your background, and um, your uh, I I looked through your Facebook a little bit, and I noticed there that there was um, you were dabbling in um, doing some workshops. And stuff like that, maybe on anxiety and and some things like that. Is that is that something that's happening, or did I read that wrong? That is that is correct. Um, it's not completed yet, but I'm looking at having it ready to go for next month. I'm going to be doing. I don't know. I don't want to put out a plug for any other companies or whatever. But um, it's a mastermind course, okay. and um, I'm going to have it's going to be six weeks long. Mm -hmm and having like 19 sessions and things like that dealing with anxiety and stress and how to overcome obstacles it's going to be a combination of conglomeration of all kinds of things having to do yeah. with trauma disabilities i mean, basically i took my book and made it into a course nice yeah and man it's so needed right now especially with you know you know here we are through our fourth or fifth wave of covid and mm -hmm. people's anxiety is um no longer hidden right like it's it's 
it's uh, spilling over and uh, people are really struggling and so good for you. So people will be able to follow you on your Facebook page um, as well as uh, LinkedIn. Is that where people should stay current with what you're doing? That is what your main area is, yes. Um, it's Facebook, it's a Sheldon Harris Crocker speaker. Right. Because I'm also, that's, that's the main thing that I am, is a, I'm a motive, inspirational speaker. Okay. Yeah, I started off, I, read my, I only wrote my book at the beginning of COVID because I was really close to going back to drinking. And after 20 odd years, I was actually walking towards a liquor store mm. and it just seemed like an invisible wall just came up in front of me. I didn't think my way out of going to the liquor store. It just seemed like I was walking and I just brought right up solid. Chilton, where are you going? What are you doing? Go home and read your journals. So I, I kept my journals from when I, from all those years before when I went to the addiction treatment program. And as I was reading my journals, it just came to my mind, you know, Sheldon, people told you for years that you could write a book. Might as well start. And I said, well, it's better than having my, being too tuned into all the negative news that was on the go, uh, that was happening. Too tuned into all the negative BS of people saying, oh, the world's coming to an end. This is going to happen. It's like, that's not doing me any good listening to that. So I turned off my television and then picked up a pen. Or Pan. We're never not back in the sixties now. I I picked up my um keyboard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, started typing my um book. This is a good thing I did keep all of my journals because this is a big part of what's in my book is all the journals I kept. And I kept them exactly the way they were. Yeah. And I and I just copy and paste into my book. Good for you. I didn't really. I didn't use an editor. I didn't use a publisher. I'd done every single thing myself for you that's amazing I knew there were some mistakes and everything but i went back afterwards and said you know it's there's a lot of mistakes in life yeah there's never really mistakes for learning opportunities I, yeah. because i don't believe in mistakes so i said well my life was not my life is pretty messy why can't i have a and i want my book to represent the way my life was might as well leave it the way that it is messy honest you know, yeah, straightforward, authentic, right? You know, yeah, for sure. Sounds like that. That's that's uh, I like that um, perspective. Like that, it's this is the way it was. Like no edits. Like this mm -hmm. is it. This is how it was. So um, so you're so you're available for public speaking, inspirational and motivational speaking, and people can keep their eye on uh, any workshops that are coming up if they um, dial in. I'll put all this. Um, stuff that's in your background, like LinkedIn and Amazon and, and your Facebook page. I'll put that in the show notes for the, for the podcast so people can mm -hmm. find them. And um, is there anything in particular that you want to promote um, that's coming up for you or, or is the book yeah. and the, the public speaking sort of the, what you've got um, to promote? Well, what I'm really promoting right now is I, I wanted to promote my courses, but my courses are not completely finished yet. So it's no point in me really promoting that right now. Yeah. Um, but they will be ready in the new year. Okay. What I really would, would like to be able to promote right now is my books are available on amazon.com.ca. 
uk.au got everything mm-hmm. just a new one got everything um yeah. but um keep on walking a transformative and inspirational journey Perfect. and and that is what it has been that is meant as my calling card you read that book and i'm guaranteed you will want to hire me as an inspirational speaker yeah and i have to say i I agree because i've seen some of your clips of speaking and you are a good speaker you do a really good job yeah nicely done and um so this will be out in the new year so don't don't uh don't delay if you want to check in on sheldon's um uh curriculum and courses uh they may very well be up and running by the time the podcast is uh, released so Sheldon, thank you so much for um, coming on the show and telling your story. I mean, it's an incredible story. And uh, like you say, it's it's unvarnished. Like you, you put it out the way it is. And um, there's a lot to take away from that. And like you say, people will want to hire you as a speaker if they if they read that book and and hear what you've got to say. So thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay. Friends, thanks for listening. And if you like this episode, please be sure to click on the thumbs up below for YouTube and comment. I'd love to hear what you liked most and what you want to hear more of. Um, I just basically love to hear from you. And in case you missed it, the website again is maureentowns.com. Thank you. Bye.